thank you for uh, attending the uh, Richard E. Neustadt uh, lecture on the American presidency, which is hosted by the UCL Institute of the Americas. Uh, my name is Ewan Morgan. I'm professor of U.S. studies in the Institute. It's my uh, pleasure tonight uh, to introduce uh, one of the outstanding presidential scholars uh, uh, of uh, his time, uh, uh, Andrew Rudolavija, and he is uh, Thomas Brackett Reed, Professor of Government at uh, Bowdoin College in Maine. He was until 2012 Walter E. Beach uh, Distinguished Chair at Dickinson College. Uh, as I've said, uh, he is a specialist in the modern presidency and has uh, published uh, prolifically uh, uh, with papers in top social science uh, journals uh, to his name, uh, many book chapters and uh, two uh, outstanding monographs uh, concerning the presidency, the first of which was uh, Managing the President's Program, uh, Presidential Leadership and Legislative Policy Formulation, uh, published by Princeton University Press in 2002, uh, which won the American Political Science Association Neustadt Prize, again, Richard Neustadt keeps on coming in everywhere, uh, for the best book on the presidency. Uh, a uh, few years later, he published the book, The New Imperial Presidency, uh, Renewing Presidential Power After Watergate, which was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2005. Andrew holds a BA from the University of Chicago, uh, an MA from Harvard, and a PhD from Harvard. Uh, between getting his uh, BA in 1989 and entering Harvard in 1997, uh, he was actually in government. Uh, he served as a staffer in the Massachusetts Senator and uh, was elected town councillor in his hometown of uh, Waterton, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, uh, he's been a visiting scholar at the Center for the Study of Democratic Politics at uh, Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School, visiting professor at the Institut des Etudes Politiques, uh, Sciences Po at the University of Lyon, and he has uh, been visiting professor at the University of East Anglia. So, uh, uh, without further ado, over to Andrew. <laughs> Thank you very much. It is a great pleasure to be back in England. In the short run, uh, I want to talk just a little bit about Dick Neustadt and then talk to you about Barack Obama uh, with some uh, inferences, at least, towards the future of the American presidency, uh, even perhaps under a uh, Future President Trump. Uh, so, in our uh, questions and answers, I'm happy to, to sort of, you know, go widely across the uh, the arena of American politics. Uh, obviously, uh, stuff that I've talked about uh, during the lecture portion is, is fair game, but I'm also happy to speculate wildly with the rest of my colleagues in American punditry about the future of the 2016 election. Uh, I do want to just mention Dick Neustadt, in whose honor this lecture is. Uh, is given. Uh, on the left, you'll see uh, Dick as uh, a staffer to President Harry Truman uh, in approximately 1951. Uh, Dick had uh, uh, worked in the Bureau of the Budget, uh, which is now the Office of Management and Budget, uh, for a while after being uh, discharged from the Navy after World War II. Uh, while at the Bureau of the Budget, he was working on his Harvard dissertation, uh, which wound up uh, being published in two very long articles in the American Political Science Review in the 1950s, and then, uh, of course, served as the basis for his observation of government that led to his uh, half-breaking book, Presidential Power. Right? It was, uh, Presidential Power that you're most likely to have read. That was uh, published in 1960, 
Uh, he added chapters to it throughout his life. Uh, the last edition, Presidential Power in the Modern Presidents, was published in 1990. Um, that's the edition um, you would most likely find today. Uh, but Neustadt uh, remained active in hands-on politics. Uh, he did consulting for the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Um, he wound up uh, writing a quite lengthy memo to President uh, Kennedy about the Skybolt crisis, uh, an issue of uh, uh, weapon systems uh, that uh, in Kennedy's administration was causing actually some stir between the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, this led Neustadt to spend quite some time over here, uh, wrote a book called Alliance Politics that came out of that stay. Uh, and later, of course, uh, you may know that he uh, married, this is the second marriage for both, uh, Shirley Williams. Uh, Aaron Williams, I think, now. Um, and of course, wound up spending uh, a good chunk of his later years uh, over here, uh, mostly in London, uh, working on, uh, I guess at that time, liberal Democrat uh, politics. So thick at the, uh, on the right-hand side there, you can see uh, in about 2001, uh, and I should say it was my honor to have known him, uh, he was emeritus at Harvard when I was working on my graduate degree, uh, but he very generously uh, came out of retirement at least a little bit uh, to serve on my dissertation committee. Uh, so that was a, a real honor uh, to have my work blessed, if you will, by one of the great scholars of the presidency. And if I can get my clicker to work, it was working before. Now it has stopped working. Okay. Never mind. Um, See what we can do here. Anyway, in honor of uh, Dick Newstadt, I thought I would uh, break out the Trump hat. Um, well, as I've said, uh, Newstadt really doesn't need to be made great again. He's, uh, he stayed great. Uh, you know, when your book is read, you know, 60 years after your passing, I think you're doing pretty well in your legacy to the academic landscape. All right. So uh, this evening, my topic is actually taken from a quote uh, from a John F. Kennedy staffer uh, given to a scholar named Thomas Cronin uh, and served as the title of one of Cronin's articles in the early 1970s. Everybody believes in democracy until he gets to the White House. Uh, and it's this <coughs> idea that I want to explore with regards to Barack Obama's uh, career uh, in the White House himself and the legacy that I think he's likely to leave. Uh, you'll remember, if you cast your mind back to 2008, right? It wasn't that long ago, November 2008. I was actually at the University of Stanglin that fall. Uh, and remember quite well the sort of uh, stunned reaction of, of Europe and, and Britain uh, to the election of an African-American president of the United States. Uh, that, of course, was matched uh, by the excitement in the United States itself. You'll remember crowds of people weeping in Grant Park in Chicago. Uh, you remember that was the site of a lot of weeping back in 1968 uh, as well, only that weeping was caused by tear gas, and the weeping in 2008 was caused by joy. And you recall Obama striding out right, under the Chicago skyline, and it really seemed like a new day had come. Uh, and certainly the adulation of the press uh, reflected that, right? People expected a new New Deal, a new Franklin Roosevelt, uh, somebody who was going to really reshape, reconstruct, in Stephen Skronik's phrase, uh, American politics in his own image. And indeed, in 2009, 2010, 
the Obama administration shepherded through Congress, a Congress that was heavily democratic, of course, at that time, a number of legislative landmarks. Uh, the big three uh, were, of course, the large-scale stimulus bill. Uh, the other thing not so happy about 2008, of course, was that we were uh, in the depths of uh, the Great Recession, as it's come to be known in the US at least, uh, providing nearly $800 billion of stimulus spending, uh, <coughs> both in terms of uh, cash injected into the economy and also tax cuts. Uh, that law, the American uh, Recovery Act, also included a wide range of policy changes, some of which were actually pretty important, uh, making changes to K-12 education, the so-called Race to the Top initiative, uh, student loan reform, moving over to a direct lending system of government uh, loans, uh, some money for clean energy, solar energy, right, a green agenda, all of that was wrapped into a very large and complicated bill. Uh, of course, a little bit later came the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, right, a very major change, uh, an effing big deal, as Joe Biden whispered in a rather <laughs> loud stage whisper at the signing ceremony, and indeed it was. It was the first uh, national health care reform uh, to make it through Congress, well, since... Medicare and Medicaid, certainly, but uh, at least in its intent, uh, even broader than that. And, of course, the uh, Dodd-Frank law uh, regulating financial markets, uh, given the Wall Street meltdown of 2008, uh, was passed in 2010. And all of that, again, seemed to augur a new era of government involvement and regulation in uh, the economy. Uh, but there was more to come, right, uh, without going in detail over all of these things. Right, there was additional financial regulation. Uh, two Supreme Court justices were confirmed in those first two years, uh, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, there was a tax cut extension, uh, the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, uh, barring uh, gays in the US military, or at least barring open uh, uh, sexual preference orientation in the, gay, in the US military was repealed statutorily. Uh, a treaty was ratified, right? the New START Treaty, uh, with Russia, again, all looking like President Obama was going to be able to move a rather large legislative agenda. Uh, and in fact, if you look at his success on roll call votes, right, these are issues on which President Obama took a public position. And while we can quibble about the measurement issues with roll call votes, because after all, presidents are going to take a position on issues they think they can win. Right? So there's a little bit of gamesmanship that goes on with this. But if we assume the presidents are equally good at gamesmanship, right, about lying about their position if necessary, or picking bills they think we're going to win, uh, we still can use this as a pretty good measure of relative success, even if we don't uh, necessarily want to take the figure there as absolute success. In any case, however we measure it, you can see that Obama in his first two years uh, was the most successful president in Congress going back to Dwight Eisenhower is when measurement of this issue began. So uh, extraordinarily successful first session of Congress uh, as he moved forward uh, into his term. Well, that had its own reaction, right? You'll remember, at least uh, from the media coverage of the time, the rise of the Tea Party in the United States, the rise of uh, a populist rejection of these shifts towards big government socialism. Uh, as it was called then, this was before Bernie Sanders came to the fore. Uh, but you can see with Obamacare, with what they called the porculus instead of the stimulus, uh, issues regarding uh, uh, 
specific aspects of the health care plan, from death panels to a member of Congress shouting out, you lie, to President Obama as he gave his speech on health care uh, in 2010. Right? All of this uh, churned up the American public quite a lot. And of course, in 2010, one result was what Obama himself called a shellacking, right? a massive loss of Democratic seats in the House of Representatives, and while he did not lose Democratic control of the Senate at that time, uh, losses in the Senate as well. And you can just see the scope of those losses in absolute terms, more than 60 seats, which is more than the uh, Truman loss in 1946, a large-scale rejection then, and even in 1994, when Bill Clinton uh, lost the House as well, uh, that time for the first time since 1954. So, again, a shellacking with the impact, uh, with a very important impact, I should say, on American politics. Right? One of the issues that arose quite immediately, right, as Republicans took control of the House and again gained strength in the Senate, was effectively uh, Mitch McConnell, then Senate Minority Leader, now Senate Majority Leader, uh, and his take on what the Republican agenda was, right? Simply put, what they wanted was for President Obama to be a one-term president, and that meant opposing more or less everything that the president proposed. That included, of course, uh, the issues that we already talked about, right? Obamacare passed with one Republican vote in the House, and he lost in 2010, by the way, one of the only Republican incumbents to do so. Um, he had passed the stimulus bill, Again, with basically no Republican support, despite throwing in a lot of tax cuts in an effort to gain Republican support. So very consistently, from the beginning of the administration, the Republican Party had decided the best way to regain its strength was to oppose the president's initiatives. Uh, given the power to do that more effectively in 2011, they did exactly that. Uh, and more or less repeated this mantra in different forms uh, something that's gone on more or less to the present day. Uh, Lewis Carroll, to me, uh, put it quite well, I think. I think this probably reaches its height at the 2011 negotiations over the so-called Grand Bargain. It seems a long time ago now. A lot of water has passed under the American political bridge since. But in 2011, there was a lot of thought that uh, President Obama and the new Republican majority, uh, personified here by John Boehner, the new Speaker of the House, uh, would be able to reach some kind of compromise on a bill to rein in spending. Remember, the American deficit uh, had reached uh, a level of more than $1 trillion annually. That stimulus spending and so forth was all borrowed. And that came on top of a lot of borrowing for the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, and of course then the loss of a great deal of capital, at least on paper, in the stock market crash in 2008. Uh, and so the American budget was well out of balance. The Republicans who had swept in were pledging to restore fiscal responsibility, and President Obama seemed willing to make a deal, right? Sorry, can't wander as far as I would like. So what was included? Uh, well, part of it uh, was the increase in the debt limit, right? In the United States, there's a law that limits how much money can be borrowed by the government at any one time. Uh, since the U.S. government is not very good at actually rolling back the amount of money it spends, it tends to increase that debt limit over time. Uh, but the Republican majority, and certainly the House Party, uh, House Tea Party faction of the Republican majority, 
saw this as a great piece of leverage, right? They, what could they get in exchange for increasing the statutory debt limit? Um, well, Obama made overtures towards talking about perhaps $4 trillion in deficit reduction, right? And this was going to happen in three ways, through discretionary spending cuts, uh, through scaling back uh, the very large and expensive entitlement programs, uh, especially Social Security pension payments and Medicare health care for the elderly, uh, and then finally, increased tax revenue. Uh, everybody sort of agreed on these things, um, but the devil was very much in the details, right? If you talk about increased tax revenue, for example, it's an article of faith in the Republican Party, or most of it, that if you lower tax rates, you will actually make more tax revenue because of the growth in the economy that will ensue. For the Democrats, that was laughable, right? That was just bad math. And so already, number three was problematic. Number one was problematic, right? Because Republicans wanted to cut domestic spending but not military spending, and Democrats more or less wanted the opposite. Number two was problematic because the only Democrat who really seemed interested in Social Security reform was Barack Obama. And when he talked about you know, ways of reforming that program, uh, he found a, a deaf ear <coughs> on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue on Capitol Hill. Uh, now, they still seem to be on the verge of cutting a smaller deal. Uh, and depending which account you read, uh, you wind up blaming either Barack Obama or John Boehner for not being able to cut the deal, right? Boehner blamed Obama for not being able to bring along Democrats to reform entitlements. Uh, Obama blamed Boehner for not being able to get enough members of his own caucus to pass uh, numbers one and three. What they wound up doing, of course, was kicking the can down the road a little bit, uh, creating what... Uh, uh, Emmanuel Cleaver, representative, a Democratic representative from Missouri, called, as you can see, a sugar-coated Satan sandwich, which I think is one of the better quotes of the Obama administration. Uh, the simpler name was just the sequester, which is that it would, uh, this deal was going to kick in automatic spending cuts. The hope was that a deal would be reached to prevent that, uh, but the default was going to be these automatic cuts, both in uh, domestic and military spending, and perhaps predictably, no deal was ever reached. And so those cuts, in fact, did go into effect uh, and had been in effect until this, this budget year. In, fact. Um, in any case, this left a lot of bad blood um, and sort of the notion of gridlock, you know, <clears throat> ensconced in American politics, right? Until 2011, again, this is sort of early summer 2011, there had been this hope, right, that the 2010 election results would force the parties to work together. Um, the rhetoric on both sides, at least briefly, suggested that might be the case. As I've said, uh, that didn't happen. And indeed, we wound up sort of with you know, a stalemate, the kickback to a game that nobody could win. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of a series of debt limit showdowns that wound up with the downgrade by one of the major credit rating agencies of American debt. Right? And this was a... Uh, you know, rather traumatic and, frankly, expensive because it made American borrowing more expensive. So what Obama found from this, right, was a lesson that Benjamin Disraeli um, learned long ago, right, as prime minister um, during the Victorian era, right? Disraeli, of course, had a reputation for having a silver tongue, um, but at one point he wrote, yeah, my repartee may sparkle, but a majority is the best repartee in the legislative body. And Obama found this to be the case as well, right? A great speaker, but while in 2009, 2010, 
Uh, support for his initiatives in the House ranged from 85% to 90%, right? Close to unanimity in his support. In 2011, with a new majority, nothing. Right? Basically nothing. And that's the pattern that has held since 2011, 2012, 13, 14, 15. Uh, 2015, actually, a couple of things did pass. Uh, a new highway bill, for example, uh, and a uh, update of the federal uh, elementary and secondary education policy, replacing the uh, widely loathed No Child Left Behind Act. But again, uh, given the scope of issues on the table, these seem, while important successes, uh, not really to shift the narrative of general gridlock and of the fact that without a majority, President Obama was unlikely to get anything through. And of course, remember that in 2014, uh, the Senate also went over to the Republican Party, making it even more difficult for President Obama to move a legislative agenda. And so it was with some wistfulness, perhaps, that President Obama looked back on his predecessor right, and thought about George W. Bush. Right? Now, Bush, of course, after the September 11, 2001 attacks, had asserted a very aggressive agenda of unilateralism. Under the guise of the theory of the unitary executive, he had made arguments about the inherent power of the presidency that in some ways were unprecedented. Uh, even those tools that he inherited from past presidents, uh, notably Presidents Reagan and his father, George Bush, and President Clinton, uh, he used again more aggressively than they had done in the past. So part of the legacy of George W. Bush, right, was as you can see this notion that instead of e assumed out of the many, one, just one was enough, right? And the president was going to dictate policy. Um, it was never quite that simple, of course, in real life, but this is certainly part of what the 2008 campaign was run on. And early, uh, well, first during that campaign, and then early in his uh, first term, President Obama seemed to strike quite a different attitude, right? He, of course, had opposed the war in Iraq. Uh, he was thought to be uh, much more sensitive to issues of the balance of power between the three branches of government. Again, given his training, uh, he was a professor of constitutional law at the University of Chicago. Right? He certainly knew the issues uh, quite deeply, and he argued in the campaign right, to Charlie Savage at the New York Times, I'm not a big believer in doing things unilaterally. Um, and in a major speech at the National Archives in May 2009 talking about security policy and the balance between civil liberties and security, he said, look, detention policies can't be unbounded, referring, of course, largely to the, uh, the fate of those still imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Right? They can't be based simply on what I or the executive branch decide alone. I will insist that there's oversight of my actions. Right? Well. That really didn't survive the Republican majority in Congress, right? partly because he felt that oversight of his actions would be counterproductive. Right? President Obama, and we'll come back to this point, has tried to close Guantanamo Bay without any success. Um, but in a number of other areas, he decided he would push forward uh, where he could. Right? In 2011, looking forward to the 2012 campaign, where of course he wanted to be able to run on a platform of you know, having gotten things done, uh, President Obama said that we can't wait for Congress to do its job. Where they won't act, I will. This became a big banner you can still find at whitehouse.gov slash we can't wait 
Yeah, a whole bunch of things that were sort of thrown under that banner leading up to the 2012 election uh, are still collected there. Uh, in 2012, as he uh, went into the State of the Union address, he effectively announced the same thing. I intend to fight obstruction with action. And then in 2014, uh, his famous phrase, I've got a pen and I've got a phone. And I can use that pen to sign executive orders, take executive actions, and administrative actions that move the ball forward. So he effectively proclaimed, not exactly a war on Congress, uh, but a plan to go around Congress wherever possible. Where Congress wouldn't act, he would. Well, you can imagine, of course, the response was not uh, also dreamy from the uh, Republican caucus. Um, there was a little bit of pushback from the Democratic caucus. I might suggest actually not enough pushback from the Democratic caucus, but we can come back to that point. Um, but Eric Cantor, then the House Majority Leader, resurrected Arthur Schlesinger's trope, the Imperial Presidency, right? As you can see in this sort of funereal black volume of doom that he's published, <laughs> listing all the problems of uh, uh, you know the new emperor, President Obama, right? The Obama Year of Action figure comes with pen and phone, Constitution not included. Uh, Randy Weber. Um, Representative from Texas, not the brightest light in Texas, which is saying something. But there is a nonetheless a, uh, you know, didn't have spell check, I don't think. Uh, he called Obama the commandant in chef. Um, I don't know about Obama's cooking skills, but uh, you know, the notion of Obama as socialistic dictator clearly had taken hold. Ted Cruz was not yet running for president, uh, that would be shortly thereafter, right? When so far as to claim there's simply no precedent for an American president so wantonly ignoring federal law. And that effectively is the narrative that took hold, again, especially on the Republican side of the aisle. So what did the president actually do? This is worth thinking about in a little bit of detail. Right? Well, President Obama was actually quite active uh, in his use of executive orders and memoranda. Um, signing orders there in a number of areas, uh, including in uh, things leveraging the power of the federal government to contract, uh, he was, in fact, uh, very active. So federal contractors, right? Remember, the executive orders can only apply to the federal government, right? A presidential executive order doesn't apply to me wandering around in Brunswick, Maine, unless I have business with the federal government that that can impact. Now, of course, the federal government spends an awful lot of money in the private sector in the United States. And so uh, limiting the ways that federal contractors can act, for example, forbidding them from uh, discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation, or uh, requiring that they pay a certain minimum wage, or requiring a certain quality of gender in the workplace, all of this is actually uh, a pretty important uh, tool that the federal government can use. And this is something presidents have done going back to well, Harry Truman's order to desegregate the military in the 1940s, or uh, perhaps more relatedly, John F. Kennedy's order to begin to desegregate federal housing in the 1960s. Right? And so uh, using executive orders, President Obama was able to move the ball forward, as he liked to put it. Uh, another aspect which has become more clear over time is his use of executive memoranda. Right? Because in terms of absolute numbers, the executive orders issued by President Obama actually have not been that high. Right? Look down on the far right, 
right? So the average per year, in fact, you know, is about as low as that number has been going back to President Truman. Uh, President Truman here is a little bit of an outlier because there's a lot of executive orders wrapping up World War II organizations and things like that. Um, so what was different, right, was that President Obama was issuing a lot of memoranda, which are basically the same thing, only they're not necessarily published in the Federal Register. Uh, according to the Office of Legal Counsel in the White House, the executive memorandum has the same force of law as an executive order. And so it was you know, possible to wonder why President Obama was moving into the realm of executive memorandum. That's a, a story we still don't know in full, uh, something that I think is going to actually prompt a lot of research. But what's worth thinking about is the fact that if you add in the executive memorandum that he issued, right, suddenly the Obama totals jump up quite a lot, in fact, jump up past George Bush or Clinton or Bush Sr. or even Ronald Reagan uh, and back to the level issued by Jimmy Carter. And Carter had a very uh, aggressive reorganization agenda, uh, so he's a little bit of a, an outlier as well. But in any case, it certainly uh, makes it much less convincing um, that President Obama has been restrained in his use of executive orders or executive action, if we want to try to include the two. Uh, so if you look at President Obama's own rhetoric, they'll say, oh, people are accusing me of being a dictator, but I've issued hardly any executive orders. That's true, but that's sort of a lawyer's version of true. Right? <laughs> that is technically true, but if you include uh, a wider definition uh, that goes beyond the formal definition of executive orders, then President Obama has, in fact, been quite aggressive here on a number of issues. And memoranda can also be used to spur other types of executive action, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, another thing that the president did was to use uh, what's called prosecutorial discretion. Right? There are lots of crimes that go on, lots of things that happen that cannot be prosecuted. Right? There are big classes of crimes, uh, classes of drug crimes, for example, or in the case of immigrant families, uh, people who could legally be deported from the United States, uh, but whom their Congress has not provided nearly enough money to deport. Right? Uh, another issue, right? what if a state passes a law that is in direct violation of a federal law? Right? Colorado and Washington State right, passed uh, laws by referenda that basically said, we're not going to prosecute marijuana. Right? Go for it. Um, and so that was in contradiction to federal law. President Obama could have said, oh, well, you may not prosecute it, but we're going to send thousands of federal agents to prosecute it. He did not do that. He stepped back, in fact, and said that, you know, as long as we sent out guidelines through Attorney General Eric Holder, there on the left, uh, to basically tell the federal uh, ranks of prosecutors, the U.S. attorneys and the people who work for them at the state level, uh, not to prosecute crimes unless they involved large-scale drug dealing, gangs, violence, and so on. But the kind of recreational use that had been legalized, the federal government was not going to touch. Um, that is a fairly major step, right, of saying we're not going to enforce a certain part of federal law. Uh, the immigration question, which of course has raised a lot of issues. President Obama said, right, there are certain groups of people who are in the country, they're not here legally, but I'm not going to deport them. Right? I'm going to tell them that right now. In fact, I'm going to let certain groups of them work and have working papers so they can uh, make a living while they're in the United States. Uh, he did that in two stages, one before the 2012 election, 
when he effectively implemented the so-called Dream Act, which is uh, deferred action on deport deportation uh, for people who had been brought to the United States as young children, under the uh, argument that if you were three years old, you were brought into the country, it really had nothing to do with you. You've been here, you've gone to school, maybe you're in college, maybe you're in the army, right? We should not be deporting you at that point. It's a very sympathetic population, and so uh, there was some grumbling about this, but little pushback. Uh, however, in 2014, in a much larger claim, President Obama said that he was not going to deport uh, basically uh, any of the parents of the people who I've just mentioned, um, or those uh, who had been in the country for some time without committing crimes, uh, who had been paying taxes and so forth, uh, as many as five million people might be included in this. Uh, and so it was a very large-scale claim. Um, but again, President Obama justified it under the guise of prosecutorial discretion. I don't have enough money to deport everybody. I can only deport some people. Therefore, I might as well just say who I'm not going to deport. And he set in place a series of priorities for those that he was going to seek to deport. Um, so again, all of this, and I should add perhaps too, the, uh, the shift of federal prosecution away from crimes, mostly drug crimes, dealing with mandatory minimum sentences. Another administration policy where they would actually charge uh, potential criminals with uh, different crimes to avoid the use of mandatory minimum sentences uh, because criminal justice reform was again, bogged down in Congress, even though on this issue there is some bipartisan agreement about its utility. Um, so here, right, this is not a question of creating new law so much as it is not enforcing old law. And that, of course, has had, uh, again, a lot of criticism over time. Um, a third sort of category here, and here's a, an area where President Obama sometimes used memoranda to prod federal agencies to take action. Right? So he would send a memoranda, say, to the Environmental Protection Agency and say, you know what, uh, I know that uh, you've been told in the past not to pursue uh, issues dealing with uh, climate change arising out of the Clean Air Act. Guess what? I'm in charge now. I want you to pursue regulations. And in fact, uh, a number of very large-scale regulatory initiatives, uh, the Clean Power Act, uh, not actually an act, it's the Clean Power Plan, sorry, because um, again, it's not passed by Congress, in fact, it's been opposed widely by uh, Republicans in Congress, uh, largely because it shuts down the U.S. coal industry in a pretty serious way. Um, and so the idea, of course, was to limit uh, carbon dioxide and monoxide emissions, and therefore to uh, seek to fight global warming, of course, in the Paris agreements last year. President Obama made that promise more official. Uh, but again, that promise is very much predicated on the executive branch being able to take action. Right? There's no uh, congressional buy-in there. This is a promise made by the executive branch to the rest of the world uh, and being conducted effectively by regulation. Again, mostly in the environmental sector, though in other areas as well. Um, another issue. Right, use of waivers. Uh, now, Congress, when it does pass a law, often will say, you know what, things are going to happen. We're not going to get back to this law for six or seven years. And so we need to give some discretionary authority to the executive branch to implement that law. Right? So in the No Child Left Behind Act, that I mentioned briefly before, uh, Congress gave the Secretary of Education the power to waive certain sections of that act. 
uh, if he or she thought it was necessary. Um, well, as we got to 2012, 13, 14, uh, I don't want to go too deeply into the specifics of that law, but effectively it was going to require uh, that most state schools be considered as failing under the law. Right? The standards that have been put in place under No Child Left Behind uh, proved difficult to meet, and uh, the requirements for punitive action on schools that had not met those standards really kicked in in 2014. So as we got up to 2012, 13, 14, uh, Arnie Duncan, who was the Secretary of Education at that time, uh, began to negotiate with the states. And he sort of thought as follows, the Obama administration wants the states to do certain things. We would like certain changes in federal education law. Congress is not going to pass those changes. But if the states will make those changes, we will waive this failing label, and they will be able to move ahead without the kinds of punitive actions that otherwise would be required to law. Well, all those blue states there took them up on this offer. Right? So 40-plus states wound up uh, cutting a deal, and some of the red states actually uh, wound up cutting separate deals. So most of the states, uh, even before the successor that <coughs> kind of behind was passed, had uh, been granted a, a waiver from it. Uh, but again, on the condition that they act in certain ways that the Obama administration thought were good policy, uh, notably with regards to curriculum standards and possibly most controversially with regards to how to assess teachers in the classroom. Right? And teachers actually were not very big fans of the way that the administration uh, acted in this area. Um, but it was a uh, equal opportunity hatred, I think, uh, in this sense, as the president moved forward. Okay, so as one last thing that's worth noting is again, you know, this discretionary power. Now, waivers are actually granted pretty specifically in law, right? So, in the No Child Left Care, the No Child Left Behind Act, it said the secretary can waive provision 1, 7, 10, 14, right? Um, however, other uh, laws that might need some tweaking as they are implemented uh, don't have these waivers in them. And so the Obama administration was pretty aggressive here, too, about implementing the law, notably, but not exclusively, the Obamacare law, the Affordable Care Act, uh, in order to uh, implement it more smoothly. A lot of this had to do with pushing back deadlines, as you can see from the cartoon. Right? As the act was going to take effect, 2014 mostly, uh, the Obama administration realized that many of the insurance plans, many of the small businesses affected were not going to be ready, and he kept pushing it back. This is problematic in the sense that the law said that such and such shall be the case on this date. And then the Obama administration said, well, maybe this other date would be okay. Right? And again, the uh, Internal Revenue Service, which was the, uh, actually because this is technically a tax law, uh, was doing a lot of the implementing, and so the uh, administration said, yes, in fact, we can move this forward administratively uh, under the IRS's you know, usual discretion over how to implement tax regulations. But again, this was something that uh, was not particularly well received. Uh, it was tricky uh, in a legal sense because, of course, the businesses that 
hated Obamacare the most were actually being benefited by the administrative actions that the, uh, Obama took, right? So they didn't want necessarily to implement the kind of health care plan that they were being told they had to implement. Uh, they didn't like the law at all. But when Obama pushed back the deadline, they couldn't claim they had been harmed by it being pushed back. They didn't want it to be implemented. And so uh, it was very hard to come up with a legal defense against this, right? It was hard to bring it to court. Uh, and so most of this, again, moved forward. Uh, and at this point, uh, those new deadlines, the revised deadlines, have been reached. And law is, is puttering along. Um, so uh, again, though, a very aggressive reading of the president's discretionary powers over implementation. Right? Remember, the Constitution says that the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And this was the question that arose. Right? How faithful to the law was the president being? I want to spend just a little time on the war powers, uh, because we should, and because they are obviously pretty uh, objectively important. Um, remember that the president inherited wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He actually expanded the war in Afghanistan, even as he tried to wind down the war in Iraq, um, with, of course, as you know from the headlines, limited success. Um, so the first sort of uh, interaction of the president with uh, the kinds of questions that President Bush had asserted uh, came in the uh, so-called Afghan surge. right? what should be done in Afghanistan. But there, it was pretty clear that the president did have power to act under the authorization for the use of military force that had been passed by Congress back in September 2001. Uh, but this got trickier over time, right? 2011, you'll recall the NATO operation against Libya uh, in order to, uh, it was argued then, to provide humanitarian assistance uh, to refugees fleeing the Gaddafi regime. Gaddafi uh, had threatened uh, uh, basically mass murder. NATO stepped in. Uh, the end result was a pretty massive airstrike campaign uh, that uh, led to regime change in Libya, uh, though not exactly peace and, and love across that country today. Um, the legal question for the Obama administration was whether the War Powers Resolution passed by Congress back in the 1970s uh, govern Libya, and if so, whether Congress needed to take action to approve this operation. President Obama said no. First he said, well, it's a NATO operation. We have to do it. We have a treaty obligation. It's worth noting that the War Powers Resolution specifically says that treaty obligations do not override the War Powers Resolution. Um, then the President said, and rather more controversially, it has to be said, well, it doesn't count because that's not hostilities. Right? War Powers Act says if you send American troops into hostilities, then you have to use, uh, get congressional approval. Well, we said, that's not really hostilities. For one thing, it's not really a lot of stuff going on. And secondly, nobody's firing back. So it's not really hostilities if nobody's going to get killed on our side. This is what he said. You can look at it. Um, so uh, this did have some precedent in past presidential history. I can go into it more detail if you'd like, uh, but it wasn't particularly convincing then, and it wasn't particularly convincing when President Obama put it forward either. Uh, but Congress itself failed to act, right? Congress um, did consider briefly a resolution under the War Powers Resolution that would have required the president to withdraw from Libya, uh, but they did not pass it. Uh, 
The authorization to the use of military force, which I mentioned a minute ago, uh, was designed to allow the president pretty wide discretion to respond to the 9-11 attacks. Right? It gave the president discretion to figure out who had done those attacks, uh, and it involved those countries that had committed or even supported, uh, or even harbored those who had committed or supported those attacks. Uh, it was pretty clear that that meant Afghanistan, but it wasn't clear that it meant Iraq. And you'll recall, of course, that President Bush did seek and receive specific congressional authorization to conduct the Iraq war. Right? But of course, after combat operations had ended in Iraq for actually the second time, remember the mission was accomplished quite early in the war, according to President Bush, and President Obama uh, kept to the, uh, the agreement reached with the Iraqi government to withdraw U.S. combat forces in 2011. Um, the rise of the uh, Islamic State, ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, whatever you want to call them, uh, comes into question. And so then the question is, is there, again, legal authority for the United States to act? Um, and President Obama began to provide air support uh, to various parts of the Iraqi army, first of all. Again, uh, at the very beginning, under the guise of protecting uh, fleeing refugees from ISIS forces. Um, but later on, uh, taking much more offensive action. And of course, this continues to expand, given that there are now US special forces on the ground in Iraq and Syria. Uh, small numbers, we're told, but nonetheless, uh, effectively ground troops, though people in the US are very fond of saying there are no boots on the ground um, in Iraq. Um, the, again, question that was raised was the legal authorization. President Obama here said, he didn't say it wasn't hostilities, uh, but he said that the authorization that had been passed back in 2001 would count, because ISIS had once upon a time been associated with Al-Qaeda, and therefore the AUMF passed in 2001 should count, even though it should be noted that uh, ISIS was kicked out of Al-Qaeda. Right? You could actually be kicked out of Al-Qaeda for being too brutal, it turns out. And this was the case. So there was no connection. In fact, the two groups don't like each other. But that was the legal justification put forward uh, by the president. He has since, to be fair, put forth a uh, proposal to Congress for a new authorization, the ISIL authorization, sometimes it's called. Uh, but this has not been acted upon by Congress. In the meantime, the administration is acting largely on the, what might be called the six degrees of separation theory uh, here. Um, most of you are too young to remember the six degrees of Kevin Bacon game uh, that went around for a while, or the actual play, Six Degrees of Separation, um, that went on, um, I think that was from the early 90s. Uh, but the idea is that you're connected to everybody in the world by very small levels, and you, as an actor in Hollywood, are connected to Kevin Bacon by probably only two films, since he's been in so many movies. Um, so how many degrees does it take to get from Al-Qaeda to ISIS? That was the question. And what if ISIS spun somebody off? And what if they spun somebody off? And what if they spun somebody off? How far could this law really be taken to go? Right? We don't really have an answer to that question. Uh, drones, right? This is an area where President Obama was actually more aggressive than President Bush, partly because drones really didn't come online uh, technologically until the Obama administration. But of course, uh, President Obama has used drones uh, quite extensively to uh, carry out operations, uh, not only in Afghanistan, or in Iraq, but in 
Pakistan, in Yemen, in Somalia, in places where we are not technically at war, right? So the question arises as to the use of drones in those kinds of situations, right? Most recently, <coughs> excuse me, with regard to a, a pretty wide-scale attack on a Al-Shabaab training camp in Somalia. But the uh, question that has uh, raised the most legal questions in the United States has to do with the question of due process, right? United States citizens are guaranteed due process of law uh, under the Constitution. Uh, if anything uh, about your life, liberty, um, or, or happiness in the uh, Declaration of Independence, property in the Constitution is going to be taken. Right? So what is the due process if you, the president, order an American citizen to be killed in a drone attack? Right? We know this has happened three times anyway, uh, twice on purpose and once uh, so-called collateral damage of uh, one of the other targets. And so there's been quite a lot of effort to get the administration. Remember, this was the administration that said, you know, the executive branch can't do this alone. We need oversight by Congress or the courts. Well, in practice, not so much, right? Um, Department of Justice came up with a legal justification for using drone attacks on American citizens. Eric Holder, the Attorney General, uh, gave a speech saying, well, due process doesn't have to be judicial due process. It could be executive due process, right? as long as there's hey, a process. Stephen Colbert, uh, before he went off to do another piece of late night television, did a very long uh, segment on this where he concluded that due process is just a process that you do. Uh, <laughs> it would be pretty fair to say that, that is the way it has worked. Uh, Bo Bergdahl, right? This is a question of redefining the law, except here in the foreign policy arena. Right? Bo Bergdahl, I don't know how big a story this has been in, uh, in Europe, but uh, in the U.S., uh, attracted a lot of attention. Bergdahl went AWOL from his, uh, his base in Afghanistan. He was uh, captured by the Taliban. Uh, and some years later, President Obama traded five Taliban fighters in Guantanamo Bay to get Bergdahl back. Bergdahl's being court-martialed now. Um, but the question was whether President Obama could do that, uh, given that the National Defense Authorization Act, which President Obama had signed into law, said that if you are going to swap anybody out of Guantanamo Bay, you have to give Congress 30 days' notice of that. President Obama did not give 30 days' notice. He gave no notice. Right? Well, he gave him notice after the fact. He sent him a letter saying, by the way, I've done this. Um, and so... Right? The question is whether you know, the president is allowed to override statute. And if so, on what grounds? Is it because uh, he thinks the law should have said something different? Or is, in fact, he invoking inherent authority, similar to how President Bush did with regards to arguably more controversial things, like torture, enhanced interrogation, right? but also with regards to uh, you know, a range of other issues through so-called signing statements. Right? Egypt aid, another question, right? U.S. law prevents uh, U.S. aid going to uh, those who perpetrated a military coup, right? Uh, sort of the long follow-on to the Arab Spring uh, as the democratically elected, though not particularly lovely, government of Egypt was displaced by what most people would say was a military coup. Aid has continued to flow to the United States. Why? Because the administration has never declared that a coup took place. And if the coup is not invoked, then the law doesn't get invoked either. So, again, these are areas where the same kind of uh, administrative discretion 
has been invoked over uh, foreign policy issues. And then lastly, uh, just let's talk about diplomacy issues, right? We can talk about war, but talk about peace too, right? The Iranian uh, nuclear agreement was conducted as an executive agreement, not as a treaty, uh, to the great dismay of some in Congress, right? President Obama is right now in Cuba, right? Uh, diplomatic opening that Congress more or less rejects, right? But which uh, President Obama is very eager to pursue. Uh, there's a court case uh, over passports, actually, which has uh, been useful to the administration. This is the so-called Zivotofsky case. It started out as Zivotofsky versus Rice, and then became Zivotofsky versus Clinton, and wound up as Zivotofsky versus Kerry, which tells you how long that case took to go through the system uh, through different secretaries of state. Uh, but effectively, here we have a case where Congress had passed a law saying that uh, an American born in Jerusalem could choose to have Israel listed as their place of birth on their passport. Now, American policy for many years has been not to take sides on whether Jerusalem is part of Israel or not. And so if you are an American citizen born in Jerusalem, your passport says Jerusalem. Right? And that's what the Bush administration and the Obama administration were defending in court. But the question was, right, Congress had passed a law allowing an American to do this. Uh, Benjamin Zivotofsky, well, he was two years old, his parents really wanted him to do this, and it made it all the way up to the Supreme Court twice, in fact. Uh, and the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that the president, in fact, did have power to overrule this law, that the law was unconstitutional, that Congress could not infringe on the president's power of diplomacy in this context. Uh, so uh, a rare win, you might think, for the president at this at the current Supreme Court, uh, but one that really did uh, cement uh, an important piece of presidential power as a unilateral power by definition. Okay, so uh, has there been pushback? I've mentioned a little bit, but not much, because there hasn't been that much um, in a lot of ways. Uh, one case uh, where there was pushback was in the so-called recess appointments case, and this is when President Obama uh, really pushed the limits of the constitutional power of appointment uh, to name a number of appointees to different boards, National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, most dramatically, uh, at a time when the Senate said that it was not in recess and therefore would have to approve any appointments that were made under the Constitution. Um, Obama put these people on the NLRB. The NLRB made decisions. Noble Canning Company, which Models Pepsi products, I believe, uh, decided to sue on the grounds that these people had not been properly appointed, and Noel Canning won unanimously, actually, at the Supreme Court. The court said here that the president's appointment power uh, during recess could only happen when the Senate was actually in recess. And if the Senate said it wasn't in recess, then it wasn't in recess. So uh, that's a case where the president arguably overreached and got slapped down. Uh, certainly, there have been other court cases that have been less sympathetic than the Zivotofsky case to the president. Uh, the Clean Power Plan, I mentioned in passing before, that's currently held up. That's actually Justice Scalia's last opinion, voting uh, <coughs> to uh, stay the implementation of the Clean Power Plan. Uh, but there are also, of course, uh, uh, multiple court holds on the immigration plan, the bigger immigration plan that I mentioned before, uh, and that has scheduled, at least, to come before the Supreme Court this spring. Um, the House, actually, only a few days ago, passed uh, what Speaker Paul Ryan called an unprecedented brief to defend our Article I powers. 
right? And this is actually a, a brief to the Supreme Court on immigration. The House here, as a body, which is rare, right? The House, members of the House often will file briefs for the court, but the entire court less often. Uh, sorry, the entire House less often. And so they have taken a stand that the president uh, is making law rather than interpreting law in this case. Uh, and the House also sued over an appropriations provision of the Affordable Care Act. Of course, as we move forward right now, right, the Congress has refused even to consider the president's budget uh, for the first time, certainly in living memory and possibly ever since 1921 when the president was ordered in statute to produce a budget. Uh, the House and Senate budget committees have said they will not even bother to hold hearings on the president's budget. And, of course, uh, the Supreme Court nomination, uh, President Obama has just recently named Mary Garland uh, to fill Justice Scalia's uh, former seat on the court. Uh, the Republican Party has decided as a matter of, uh, uh, they would say principle, I would say perhaps as a matter of political gambling, uh, to you know, make sure that that seat is not filled by President Obama, on the grounds, by the way, right, that... Obama keeps attempting to undermine the Constitution, and therefore it would be problematic to allow him to nominate a court justice who they argue would just uphold his actions. Right? So their argument, uh, well, there's various arguments. One of them, as you can see, we can't trust Obama to appoint a defender of the Constitution. Obama, as you saw before, Constitution not included, right, when he has his pen and his phone. So you have to, uh, they would argue, make sure that uh, that is held vacant. I should note on the war on coal, this is the only war that gets mentioned in any of the Republican attacks on Obama. Uh, the war on coal is the only war we're having, if you would pay attention to some of the rhetoric. Uh, there has been much less pushback, as I said, on the uh, questions of ISIL and so forth. There were some efforts in the Senate to uh, scuttle the Iranian deal, which were not successful. Uh, and there have also been legislative writers put in place since 2001, sorry, 2009, uh, to bar the transfer of detainees uh, from Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, or uh, to spend any money on housing those detainees anywhere in the United States. So, uh, so far, uh, it's impossible for President Obama to uh, implement his very early executive order, which would have closed uh, Guantanamo Bay. Uh, <coughs> Now, Obama basically, this is just last fall. Yes, this violates all kinds of rules about PowerPoint slides, I understand. But it's, uh, it's a useful quote in its entirety because it actually cycles back to Dick Newstat, right? To an understanding of the system. Newstat said that the power of the president is the power to persuade. And the power to persuade is the power to bargain, right? And you have to bargain with all kinds of people who you call loosely Washingtonians uh, with an idea that you will convince them to do what you want them to do, right? And you will get them to see that doing what you want them to do is, in fact, in their best interest. Uh, and so Obama, right, despite the fact that he had taught constitutional law, despite the fact that he'd been a U.S. senator, said, look, I didn't appreciate, nobody can appreciate how decentralized power is in this system. I have to persuade my own party. I have to persuade the other party. I have to anticipate a lawsuit, lobbying, federal agencies, independent. I've got to get the Fed to work on it. And now I've got to get the Europeans, the Asians, the Chinese, right? All sorts of issues, not just identifying the right policy, but 
building these shifting coalitions. And so another way to put it, uh, this is Justice Frankfurter in the concurrence to a famous case on presidential power, uh, Youngstown Steel, the similar when President Truman tried to seize the United States steel plants uh, for use in the Korean War. Um, Justice Frankfurter uh, quotes President Harding. Right? Government, after all, is a very simple thing. He must have said that if he said it. It's a fleeting inhabitant of failure. Everybody believes in democracy until he gets to the White House. So where are we? Let me wrap up here. We can have some further conversation. Well, it's certainly not a new thing, right? I used the John F. Kennedy quote. This is a congressional report from December 1957, uh, worried about executive orders and proclamations. There is a wide literature on the administrative presidency, right? And using the administrative powers of the presidency to take action, to execute the law in a way that benefits your own policy priorities, right? Is that faithful execution? Well, it's faithful what do you think the law should be. Right? And fidelity in this context often has the sort of uh, resonance of the use of that word in divorce court. Right? I was faithful, absolutely. Right? Um, so this is old on the one hand, but the president has pushed it in important new ways. Right? His use of statutory interpretation, I think, has been pretty aggressive. Right? That has been an area where he has gone back and tried to find new meanings for old laws because he realizes that he was not able to pass new laws. And so, you know, there's a little bit of a, a legal industry that has arisen, or I should say an executive branch legal industry that has arisen to try to justify finding in past statute the kind of uh, authorization that would allow the president to do what he wants to do anyway. Uh, in other areas, he's been less aggressive, I would agree. President Bush, uh, I mentioned again quickly his use of signing statements, that is to append something to his signature on a law that said, well, I'm signing this into law, but section 22 I really don't think is constitutional. I'm just not going to do it. Uh, President Obama hasn't done that very much, though the Bergdahl case is an exception. Um, and what that suggests more broadly is that President Obama has tried to ground his use of unilateral authority in statute, right? So instead of saying, I am president, I am commander in chief, therefore I can do X, he said, well, this law allows me to do X, if you read it a certain way. 2001, authorization to use military force gives me the power to do Y. I don't have to rely on my inherent war powers, wherever those might be. And so, generally, right, the Obama administration has tried pretty hard to argue that instead of using prerogative power, which is not in the Constitution, he's using the statutory delegation that Congress has already authorized. So everything he does, he says he's doing as a matter of law. But as I suggested, uh, the president's lawyers are pretty good at determining that everything he wants to do is legal. Right? And so is this a distinction without a difference? I'm not sure we know the answer to that entirely yet. Uh, but, you know, if the law can be read to allow the president to do everything that he wants to do, what are the limits, right? Is that any different, really, in practice than saying, yeah, I'm the president, I can do this. What is the legacy of this? Well, again, I think there are a lot of tools that the president has used aggressively. The future presidents will go, aha, 
yeah, that was smart. I could do that too. And they probably will. To be fair, right, the president hasn't had a lot of options. Uh, this is a chart you might have seen if you've read any of the American political science literature in recent years, right? Trying to track polarization between the parties in Congress. You know, as you go sort of, as this, these lines go up, it's the difference between the two parties, right? So if there was no difference at all between the parties, if there was just one party, it'd be somewhere down here. Uh, but you can see that the uh, difference between the parties, you know, very high in the late 19th century, but dropped way down, sort of in the uh, interwar and post-war era, and then begins to tick up over time until the point where, at the end of 2015, right, the House, at least, is as polarized as it's been in this whole period, the Senate not far behind. Steady increase in what you lose in the middle, uh, sorry, what you lose is the middle, right? You used to have the Democrats who were further to the right of some Republicans, some Republicans who were to the left of some Democrats, those people are gone, pretty much. Partly it's a matter of sorting, right? Most of the Southern Democrats are not Republicans. Most of the Northern Republicans are not Democrats. So it's not solely a question of polarization, but of sorting. But nonetheless, that doesn't make much of a difference when it comes to roll call votes and the difficulty in getting legislation through. Um, the other aspect is that President Obama doesn't really have any Democrats anymore. Right? Remember 2008? He had 60 Democrats in the Senate. He had a 60, 70 vote majority in the House. Right? This was early 2009. Gallup does a poll about how the states are leaning. There's an awful lot of blue. Right? Tatarka Blue is actually leans Democratic. So even places like Virginia, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Louisiana, right? These were leaning Democratic. Basically four plus Alaska, five states, right, that were solidly Republican in 2009. Well, Gallup did that poll again, 2015. Sadly, it's not quite the same shape, but you get the point. There's not a lot of blue left, right? Good old Massachusetts, right? California, Chicago, Illinois, right? But, you know, all these states that were blue have turned red or at least pink or at least gray, right? They're competitive. So that Democratic Party advantage is effectively gone, even reversed. And more damningly, perhaps, what that means is that the Democratic farm team has been wiped out. So 2010 and 2014, especially, Right? The Democratic Party lost seats in the House, the Senate, governorships, state legislatures, all the places where you build your next generation of candidates. Right? And so President Obama has governed alone in part because he doesn't have anybody else to govern with. Right? Lost 13 Senate seats, 70 House seats net, right? 11 governorships, almost 1,000 seats in state legislatures. And I, I say he lost them. He didn't lose them all, of course. Right? The Democratic Party. Uh, you know, not the most organized piece of American political system, but nonetheless, big losses, right, compared historically as well as in absolute terms. So, it's possible, right, that uh, action is not particularly desirable. The Federalist Papers, if you want to go back and read Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and John Jay, will suggest that if there's not consensus to move ahead, then you shouldn't move ahead, right? For the framers of the Constitution, gridlock was, was fine, actually, because it suggested that there was not enough uh, consensus to move forward. 
And so one thing we do want to think about as we sort of root for or against President Obama's success as a unilateral president is whether or not he is uh, you know, sort of legitimated by the constitutional structure to act on his own. Um, but even so, right, President Obama's in pretty good company. Right? Presidents going back to the framing and up through all of the people we sort of remember as strong presidents, and some of the ones we remember as not so strong presidents, have right, been very aggressive again in expanding the toolkit available to the presidency vis-a-vis -vis other parts of government. Edward Corwin put it long ago, the history of the presidency has been a history of aggrandizement. And President Obama, I think, fits pretty comfortably into that claim. So. I'll stop there, but thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to your questions.